Hello everyone, we will start in a few moments. We will just give it time for everyone to join. So welcome to today's webinar, Designing the Future of Long-Term Care. Hello everyone. Today's webinar is facilitated by Irving Stackpole with Susan Ryan from The Greenhouse Project and Jamie Tamateo from Planet Moran. My name is Romney Douglas and I will be your moderator today. Before I hand over the mic to Irving, I have a few housekeeping items to cover about this presentation. First, today's webinar is being recorded and will be made available via email to share with all participants after the webinar. All participants today will be muted. We'd love to hear from you during today's presentation and we'll be answering your questions at the end of the session. If you have a question today, please send it through the Ask a Question tab at the bottom of the player on the right-hand side. If we don't get to your questions today, we'll be sure to follow up afterwards. So, without any further delay, I'd like to kick things off by welcoming Irving. Thank you. Thank you, Romley, and uh, welcome everyone. Thank you for taking some of your valuable time and tuning in to what we hope will be an important discussion about designing the future of long-term care. We have uh, seen quite a few changes in long-term care. Uh, we're going to talk briefly about how we got to where we are in long-term care and what we need to do to move forward. And we have two important guests in this program today to bring on and to add to this discussion in several important dimensions. But first of all, the question is, how did, how did we get here? We got to the situation in the United States with regards to congregate long-term care through a not very complicated channel. The first is that there used to be poor houses and those poor houses became nursing homes. Uh, those nursing home buildings most of which in the United States were built uh, in the mid 60s to the mid to late 70s, uh, most of those facilities got old. Uh, but along the way, we stopped investing 
in those facilities and we stopped building new ones for reasons that I can discuss on another program. Uh, these buildings, these long-term care facilities, uh, pretty much filled up with people. Uh, but the, one of the challenges was that healthcare professionals resisted the idea of working there. But unfortunately, state and federal regulations came along that required nursing home managers to hire more and more people. So we restricted payment in the United States to these nursing centers. We reimbursed them below their actual costs. And instead of cutting back on what was required of them, we basically told them to do more. Uh, so this was a recipe for difficulty in the, it, at least for difficulty, uh, and certainly not a good recipe for successful formula for long-term care, and then COVID-19 hit. The structures and design in long-term care, the built environments in long-term care have progressively deteriorated and are in a very difficult situation. Uh, the article that is on the screen right now uh, was recently published in New Yorker magazine, and it out and out said that the American nursing home is a design failure. So as I said earlier, most were, were built in the 60s and early 70s. They were modeled on hospitals. Uh, they pretty much used the same uh, blueprint of hospitals where the space is optimized not for the experience of the residents, but for the efficiency of the providers. Uh, assisted living came along in the late 80s, early 90s, and assisted living offered a very updated version for longer-term, chronically ill individuals, and so assisted living siphoned off a lot of the consumers from nursing centers, consumers which historically paid private rates to nursing centers for their long-term residents. So assisted living siphoned off a lot of those uh, private patients and for reasons that are pretty apparent to those of us who have been in both an assisted living residence versus a skilled nursing center in the United States. And since then, since the uh, 90s, there's been little or no reinvestment in the built infrastructure in congregate long-term care. The capitalization, the investments have been fundamentally extractive. There's been money taken out of the system in the form of real estate transactions, in the forms of uh, sale leaseback transactions. The federal government, meanwhile, withdrew fiscal support for long-term care long ago. Very Only a very small proportion, about 11% of the payments for congregate long-term care are sourced through the federal government. The result, I hope this isn't overstating the case too badly, the result is yuck. And the question is, would you like to stay at a Hilton or a Marriott 
that hadn't been renovated for 40, 50 years. Probably not, and apparently not very many other people need, need uh, want to as well. So the question is to redesign this future, which we should all recognize is needed. What do we need? Well, first of all, we need more variety. The cookie cutter approach to building the built environment in long-term care just isn't gonna cut it. It isn't going to cut it for baby boomers, and it certainly didn't cut it when it came to COVID-19. We need large infrastructure like college dormitories with attractive common spaces. We need medium-sized infrastructure like the current almost cookie cutter approach that's been taken by dominant players, dominant organizations in that uh, segment. We need medium-sized assisted living as well. But we also need small models like the greenhouse model, even McMansions, uh, sometimes these tie together in naturally occurring retirement communities. Um, think the Golden Girls is a, a good example. But the important thing is that real estate undergirds the sector. And whether the fundamental investment is through equity investment or debt, the current situation is problematic. How do we redesign the built infrastructure with the current financing models? Not necessarily the reimbursement models, but the capitalization models. And that's one of just one of the reasons why we've invited these two distinguished panelists to join us today. Access to capital is an issue. We need a good rational model for how to accomplish that. And we have two nationally recognized uh, presenters here to help us walk through these issues. So without further ado, I'd like to uh, pass the baton on to Susan. Or is it Jamie? I'm gonna jump in here first Great. real quick. Uh, so Irving, thanks for thanks for setting the stage there, and and I appreciate everybody uh, tuning in today and, and echo Irving's uh, sentiment about sharing your time with us. Uh, my name is Jamie Tamadio. I, I lead our pre-development uh, services for Plant Marine Living Forward. Um, our practice focuses entirely on senior living development consulting, and so this this trend that we're seeing in the nursing home industry um, with some of the issues that are that Irving just outlined. Um, is something that we deal with on an every single day basis with, with the clients that we work with daily. And what I wanted to do to just kind of set the stage first is I'm going to talk through a couple of trends that we're seeing in the nursing home industry. Um, and then I'm also going to talk through a little bit on the margins that we see in the existing environment out there for skilled nursing. Susan's going to come in. She's going to give us a background about the greenhouse model and how those 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 buildings operate and function. And then I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap us up on financially how we've had some of those, those, those models work for our clients and how we've gotten approached them with, with organizations. So the first piece I wanted to run through is just over the last little over a decade, what's been going on in, in new construction that's happening in the senior living industry kind of in, in total. And so what I have here is the bar chart represents new units that have been added specifically for independent assisted and memory care. And you can see kind of 
2008 and 9, we go into the recession, there was a dip or a little bit of a lull in new units that were added in the, in the largest 31 markets across the US. And then we've had a consistent uptick every single year, um, essentially through 2018. And we still were really strong in 19 and 2020. During COVID, we still added about 27,000 new units of, of housing, independent assisted and memory care. But what we're seeing kind of across the country, and I don't think it's any, that much of a surprise, is every year that we're adding new units of more housing, the number of beds on the skilled nursing side has been reduced. And in that, in that kind of chart on the right of our screen here is outlining the number of beds that were taken offline and reduced in circulation across the country. And if you kind of look at it from 2008 to 2020, every single year had a reduction except for uh, two years and I'm sorry, three years. And so there's really kind of a trend that we're seeing across the industry. It's something that we work with um, our clients. You know, I was sharing with Irving and, and Susan earlier this week that every engagement that we have has some form of skilled nursing repositioning and, and a, in a sense downsizing that's happening. And a lot of that goes to the attractiveness of, of the product that, that Irving kind of touched on at the beginning here. And so what I wanted to share is the the utilization that we're noticing across the United States, and I gave a comparison just on the state of Ohio as well, on how, how many nursing home beds are being utilized in the nation and, and in the state of Ohio. And so what I'm showing on this, on, this, on this screen is the number of nursing home residents that reside in a skilled nursing setting is really kind of that top number. So if I looked in 2020, nationally we had a little less than 1.3 million people living in a skilled nursing setting. We take that as a percentage of the population 65 and older. And if you look at the trend over the last decade, every year we've seen a, a steady and slow decline. So there's less and less people who are age qualified theoretically that would, that would be moving into a skilled nursing setting. A lot of this can be attributed obviously to the number of housing units that were being added um, that I showed on that previous slide. But another piece could be added that the government is pushing individuals and there's better product that's being offered out there. And so if people can afford to live in a uh, better living environment, maybe in assisted living and receive almost the same care in some settings, they're choosing to pay for that until they absolutely need to either truly need skilled care or they run out of funds and may have to qualify for Medicaid reimbursement. And so the trend in the skilled nursing environment is, has been historically over the last decade, really trending negatively over the, last, over the last decade. The other piece I wanted to touch on kind of nationally, and I, I have this map that's representing different regions, because I'm going to show you two slides in a row that talk about the margins that we see in a skilled nursing environment. And so these margins are specifically to the existing environment for all skilled nursing across the country. We show it both nationally as well as by each of the regions that are that are colored on this map. And one of the things that I wanted to make sure that that's that's abundantly clear is you hear a lot of times people talk about the greenhouse project is a great option for skilled nursing, but we can't get the numbers to financially work. And one of the things that we 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 always kind of try to have our clients level set and come back to is if you were to look at the existing environment in a skilled nursing setting and the profitability for many of those organizations, many times those, those existing products that are functioning out there are also not profitable. And so the argument that a greenhouse project 
may not financially work really may depend truly on how you plan to operate that environment. And so what I wanted to share is just nationally some of the trends. Um, the first ratio here that we're looking at is our EBITDA margin. So essentially our earnings before interest depreciation and amortization. And what it is for the different regions that I had shown on that previous slide. Nationally, the average for, for our EBITDA margin is, is just a little less than 10% for uh, the existing skilled uh, nursing environment. And you can see across the country, it kind of varies depending on what region you do fall in. One of the things I do wanna point out that these numbers do represent uh, 2018 results. So we looked at this well before COVID started coming into play, because we wanted to have, uh, you know, where were we before COVID? You know, I think if, you know, if we started looking at this with, with COVID numbers factored in here, you'd have uh, an even more grim picture uh, potentially. Then this, then this last slide that I wanted to, to point out before I hand it over to Susan is, is what our, our net margin looks like. So this, this factors into your interest and your depreciation and the amortization. And when you add those components in there, and you're kind of really looking at your bottom line net income for an organization. Skilled nursing homes, for the most part, essentially broke, broke dead even or lost some money. Nationally, it was about a 0.21% a margin for, for the existing skilled nursing environments that we have out there. And so a lot of the a lot of the organizations that are offering skilled product are making the conscious decision to say the existing product that we offer does not work. Should we explore other options? And if we do explore those, how do, how do we get them to work? Some organizations I know are shifting saying, I'm going to offer more of a housing product. So I'm going to add more independent, more assisted, more memory care. And I'm going to just downsize the number of nursing home beds I offer to, to, our, to the residents in our community. Others are saying they still want to maintain the number of nursing home beds, and so they're looking at other avenues and ways to do that and to make them attractive and viable long-term into the future. And so when we dive into that, I want to hand it over to, to Susan to kind of talk about some of the cultural impact and the staffing models that, that we're seeing in the Greenhouse uh, Project. Thanks so much, Jamie. I appreciate that. And uh, let's talk a little bit about the greenhouse model. And I guess what I first want to do is to, uh, to thank Irving for setting such an incredible context. And I appreciated what you said about how the nursing homes, how did we get here? Nursing homes are modeled after the traditional um, hospitals. And I think the other thing that Irving said that I really resonated with was the structures were really created for efficiency and not really thinking about the people that would be living inside them. And also the call for more variety, I, I couldn't echo that more. Moving to Jamie, some of the comments you made, you talked about downsizing, the lower utilization. And I think for me, I would say there's not a one size that fits all, number one. And rather than downsize, let's call it right size and let's figure out what we need to build and what we need to do given some of the realities we're in right now in a COVID environment. So let me unpack what the greenhouse model is. I'm always amazed at how many people still think greenhouse might refer to some sort of um, green environmental initiative or a literal greenhouse. But let me talk more about what the greenhouse model is. Um, I would tell you as a nurse of greater than 40 years working in home care settings and long-term care settings, this is a radical paradigm shift. 
that it's not just the physical environment that we see, but it really is a comprehensive transformation of not just the physical environment, but it really is the philosophical culture and it is the organizational structure. So I think of it as a three-legged stool and you really need all three legs that each are important. You don't want one larger than the other, but they're really equally important to really creating and being a part of that radical paradigm shift. I think the other thing as someone who has been a part of culture change initiatives, as long as I've been working in long-term care, it's one thing to implement change and another thing to sustain it. And I think for me, the greenhouse model is really about a radical paradigm shift that's comprehensive in nature and it's really about sustaining change. So let's unpack it by our core values. So that physical environment, when you think about what is the right structure? Well, we don't want home-like, we want real homes. And so that physical environment, real home is the core value that refers to greenhouse. So what does it take to get us there to a real home? Well, first of all, we believe that it should be small, no more than 10 or 12 people living in that setting, really creating more of that familial setting. In addition to that, you'll see a hearth at the top of left-hand corner here. Um, that's a hearth at John Knox Village in Pompano uh, Beach, Florida. That's the heart, their living room, if you will. You can see the kitchen on the other side of that uh, fireplace. In addition to that, privacy is important. And so we want private rooms, but private baths, each having their own private shower with um, in their bathroom there. And last but not least, you know, open kitchens with meals prepared. We've decentralized departments. So every home has its own kitchen, its own ability to do the laundry its ability to do housekeeping there. So it's autonomously functioning. That's a real home. I don't share those things with my neighbors and we don't think elders should share it with uh, their neighbors as well. One of my favorites is access to outside. And I think uh, during the pandemic, how important it was to be able to get outside and to really experience um, the opportunity to do those things that are more normal which is a perfect segue into that second core value, which is meaningful life. So it's not just about person-centered care where care is centered on who I am, but it's about deep knowing, relationship-rich, person-directed living. So the better I know who a person is and I'm able to engage with that person, uh, the better I'm I'm able to help them live a meaningful and a purposeful life. A meaningful life means there's a degree of autonomy and control in what I'm able to do. And so all these pictures that you have on your screen are elders during the pandemic that were able to experience a meaningful and purposeful life. And when you contrast it with those that were on lockdown, confined to their rooms, a semi-private room at that, having meals delivered to their rooms. Think about how, just think about, rather than mitigating the spread of the infection, this is promoting health and well-being, even during a pandemic. So not just the structural, physical environment of a real home, but really the meaningful life that occurs in there. And it's purposeful engagement. 
um, you can see a couple at the top here. They're having, they're celebrating a milestone anniversary. Um, honoring the natural rhythms, what's important to a person, what's important to them to really help them to experience a meaningful day, and the real need to be socially connected. As humans, we are hardwired to be in relationship with one another. So you can see relationships happening in each of those pictures, an integral part of our core value, meaningful life. There's our access to outside. I love this. There's actually a story to the gentleman um, that's barbecuing on the left. This was in Tupelo, Mississippi, where barbecue is pretty darn important to them in Tupelo. So instead of a barbecue, they had what they called a quarantine. And this is a direct care worker who's fixing something on a grill and an elder who's out there supervising and, you know, physically distanced, but able to provide commentary to what he's grilling. And on the right, I can't tell you how many gardens were grown during the pandemic, an opportunity for elders to get outside and experience that sense of normalcy that is really a part of living a meaningful and purposeful life. And so gardening activities was huge during the pandemic. Last but not least, the third leg of the stool to me is one of the most vital and probably one of the most overlooked in many culture change initiatives. And that is how do we create an empowered workforce? And how do we really utilize the, those that are working closest to the elder and really getting them in consistent teams, dedicated staffing, um, really embracing a coaching culture. I'll say a little bit more about that in a bit, but having them work as a versatile worker, or you might know it as a universal worker. And when you empower those that are working closest to the elder, and you really support them and hold them accountable to, and equip them to do their job, it's amazing what happens. So a universal worker or versatile worker is somebody that does not only the care, provides and meets the care needs of an individual, but it really that person does the cooking, that person does the laundry, the person does the housekeeping. And in this case, in one of the images, you'll see somebody who is actually doing the caulking in the house, but really equipping them to be household managers, making sure they are in those consistent assignments so that they're able to know elders as an individual, and they're able to see what does it take for each person to be able to live his or her meaningful life. And I can't say enough about the function of leadership to make that happen. So as Irving said in his slide, and then along came COVID, and how did COVID rock our worlds? I was looking at 2020, maybe like some of you thinking, this is the year, we're into a new decade. This is the moment where there, there's going to be great things that will happen. And little did we know that we were going to be hit by a deadly virus, uh, affectionately or, or not so affectionately known as COVID-19. I was uh, emailing with a, a friend recently and he shared this excerpt from an interview that was done on uh, NPR. And this was an interview that was really talking about, as Irving talked about, the structures that really created or exacerbated, fueled the flame, if you will, of COVID-19. And the interview was with Ed Young, who is a science writer for The Atlantic. 
So I'm just, I'm not going to read it verbatim. Um, I hope you will read it verbatim because I think a couple things to point out to you. First of all, the fact that this interviewer is referring to nursing homes along with prisons and talking about them as cauldrons and a structural sickness. And I think it certainly builds upon what Irving has said, but to put nursing homes alongside an institution, another institution where people are often warehoused and the, those would be prisons. So interesting that the interviewer is really getting into the structural issues and the sickness of our structures. But I love Ed Young's response. He definitely agrees with the fact that yes, they, they are structurally sick and they are cauldrons. They are definitely fueling the flame, but I think it was also very interesting. He talks about what I'll call the devaluation of elders, those that are living in our traditional nursing homes. I think he's also at the marginalization that has occurred and you'll see the uh, marginalizing re referenced there. And to really talk about it as, this is truly shameful that why are we, why are we doing this and why we're doing it, he would argue is because of some of our ageist stigmas and the stereotypes and the devaluation that is occurring as a result. And that's why we have some of our structural sicknesses. And that's why COVID, when it went through nursing homes, created the damage that it did. So I'm gonna show you a slide. We began collecting data uh, between greenhouse, among our greenhouse homes and then comparing it to their traditional counterparts. Actually, we are continuing to um, collect our data. So each month we work with a researcher from the University of North Carolina. And so we were uh, utilizing a methodology that was very similar to what the CDC and CMS reporting had set up. So they weren't being duplicative to what they were doing there. And when we looked at data, this is just the raw data from January through December of 2020 you can see that COVID cases on the left-hand side, green of course, uh, is greenhouse, 214 COVID cases per 1,000 nursing home residents, residents compared to 445 in the traditional nursing home. On the right-hand side, you will see we looked at mortality rates and per 1,000 nursing home residents, 23 in greenhouse compared to the 87 in traditional nursing homes. There was research that was published in JAMDA, and um, I know I sent Romilly our PDF of that research. So if you're interested in drilling down and really going down to see, so where were greenhouse homes located? How did they compare to nursing homes less than 50 beds and nursing homes in the same geography to greater than 50 beds? And happy to share that with you. Here's the other thing, and kind of speaking to the lower utilization among nursing homes, um, I loved Irving's comment at the beginning. He said, would any of us want to stay in a Hilton that hadn't been renovated for 40 or 50 years? Consumer choice. And when you look at occupancy rates in greenhouse homes, um, pre-COVID, yeah, so greenhouses on the left, traditional, and the national average is on the right. Pre-COVID, we were about 97%. During COVID, it dropped to 90%. But look at the national average, average pre-COVID, we're like 83%. And during COVID, down to 71%.
So the greenhouse difference, we every year collect data from our organizations. And so in May, we looked back at 2020 to, to take a look at occupancy. Um, we also looked at staff turnover and we looked at operating costs. So the data you see on the right for greenhouse is all 2020 averages um, across greenhouse homes from the data we collected. So it's 2020 representing a COVID year for greenhouse homes. The data we were able to compare it to was actually pre-COVID data. So to Jamie's point, he was talking about some um, data that he had, and he said this is actually pre-COVID, so it has only gotten worse with COVID. So I think uh, pretty interesting. Uh, obviously, staff turnover was a huge issue no matter where you were, but you can see how much better it was on the greenhouse side of things. I love the operating costs So pre-COVID and traditional we're looking at about $276 a day on the traditional side, average and in greenhouse homes average 261 per day. And that's taking into account COVID expenditures. So how do you make this work is the question that always gets asked. And I would say there's a lot that has to do about empowering your workforce and really building a culture where people matter and really resourcing your workforce to make the model work. You can't half jump, you've got to fully commit. And I will tell you, empowerment is as much a function of leadership. And it really, I tell you, leaders that fully embrace the model and embrace what needs to happen by way of staffing, and I'll talk about that on the next slide, but really thinking about what is a coaching culture? How do I share power? How do I share decision-making with those that are in each of those homes so that I'm resourcing them to make wise, um, good decisions that have impact on your costs? And obviously satisfaction among your elders. It's about really leaders that will fully empower the team education and equipping this group with the core competencies. If you're asking them to cope, you need a strong culinary program and making sure that they've got what they need to make it work. What is the communication? What is it looking like so that we're disseminating information and making sure each uh, team member has what they need to be successful? It's really owning the role and the responsibilities. How will we get the job done? What does it look like and how do we share responsibilities, share tasks, but we really understand our roles. And last but not least, it's making sure that self-managed work team has the necessary support to be successful and leaders are holding them accountable to doing their job well. So let's drill down a little bit and look at the number of FTEs. This is contemplating a greenhouse home of greenhouse homes, I should say, probably um, 10 elder homes, so six homes, 60 elders total in a traditional facility that would be home to 60 elders. And you can see the cost shifting that is essential to making it work. So the green line obviously is greenhouse and you can see far more CNAs. You have more LPNs and RNs. This is that direct care time that is going in to support those working closest to the elder. But then it's the shifting that has occurred. So administrative and clinical support, which that can be costly care or um, costly in terms of wages are concerned. So you have more on the traditional side, less on greenhouse side. Obviously, your dietary food service, laundry, housekeeping, that is way down. 
and greenhouse, but way up on the traditional side because of that cost shifting that we've done. And on my last slide, there was some research that was done in 2009 and 10, and they were really taking a look at the total time, the hours per resident day. And once again, you can see reflected the increase in the traditional, or excuse me, the increase in the greenhouse of the CNA or the Shabazz as it is known in greenhouse. You can see also the um, licensed nurse, it's a little bit more in the greenhouse home, but you see that there's actually uh, less time per day, uh, per resident day, less hours per resident day. And again, that um, expensive administrative clinical lead time in green, you can see much more in a traditional nursing home, the layers, the hierarchy and such uh, that are required to make a traditional home work. Um, that's costly, it does come at a cost. And so you can see getting more of the direct care staff to the resident is what's so important. So back to you, Jamie. Thanks, Susan. Um, so I'm gonna just provide a couple slides here and wrap us up on strategies that, that we've worked with Susan and her team um, and our clients on how to implement the greenhouse uh, offering on, on organizations' uh, campuses. And one of the things that, you know, I kind of alluded to at the beginning is, you know, somebody might come in and say, we wanna make sure that what we implement needs to be uh, a profitable or, or a worthwhile endeavor, which is obviously a, a very important statement. But one of the things we always ask our clients is how do you see the greenhouse and just in general, the skilled nursing environment on your campus functioning? And we typically try to get them to commit to, there's two avenues that you could look at. You could either have a greenhouse project on your campus that supports your entire campus. And the profitability of, of the homes might be either close to a break-even level or slightly losing money. And if you think about how is your existing skilled nursing currently functioning on the campus, in many cases, that's exactly how they're already functioning. And so are you trying to offer a greenhouse product on your campus to help, one, provide a much better quality of life, a better environment, and a better working situation for many individuals that Susan just outlined for us. And, and you have that ability to provide and use that from a marketability standpoint, so that if you have a portfolio or a campus that has many care levels on it, are you looking at that when a person tours your campus, they might be coming in and touring a assisted living environment or an independent living environment, but you almost look at the greenhouse in a sense to say, I also wanna showcase this is how we have our skilled nursing product as well. And you and I find many providers will often use that as something to brag about and boast about that they have that environment on their campus to offer um, their residents should they need that, that level of care. Whereas if you play the opposite, many times if someone has multiple care levels on their campus and if a resident were to come in and look for independent living, if you have an old dated skilled nursing environment, you're probably avoiding that from a market marketing standpoint and not touring that resident through that. So that's one certain avenue is, do you wanna use the, the greenhouses to support your existing portfolio or campus? The second avenue is, 
you're going to actually look at this to say, no, this needs to be a profit center. And I want to I want to have my greenhouses generate profitability that can support itself on a standalone basis. And if that's the case, there needs to be an unbelievable amount of discipline related to how you market those products and the type of payers that you ultimately have moving into that, that, that care environment. And so one of the examples I wanted to walk us through is an example we went through with a client. Um, Susan and her team were involved in this as well. And so what I kind of outlined is just at a very high level where they started. And this was actually happening right at the onset of COVID actually. And what they had is they, they were currently operating a 175 uh, bed, five story skilled nursing building. And they knew that that environment that they were offering residents was consist considerably shrinking. They were having less and less people choosing to live there. And it was they were having a harder time providing the quality of life that they wanted to for many of their residents. And so um, what I'm outlining kind of on this first chart at, in the top right is what their existing unit occupancy was and the number of residents that resided in the different payer types. And so they were they had about 150 residents that lived in that that existing building that they offered and about 106 of those residents were Medicaid payers. And what they wanted to do is say, we know this is not a, a sustainable environment. We want to start to offer more of a greenhouse uh, home on our on our campus. And so they looked at a, a plan where they would go on. They had a, they had an assisted living that was down the road from their from their skilled nursing environment. And so they looked at a master plan where they built five different greenhouses that, that surrounded the campus. And then they were also going to add an independent and a memory care building um, that would attach into their existing assisted living. What they asked us to look at, though, is they wanted to see if we just built those green homes, how would those financially work? And what did we need to do in order to get those financially to, to be above a 1.2. Their, their target was to be either at or right about a 1.2 debt service coverage ratio. And so the sensitivity that we started to outline for them and provide them those, those numbers is to show them a couple of things. What we did is we essentially started demonstrating to them the ability or the impact that their Medicaid population had, had on, their, on their organization. And so what we ran is we created a matrix and we showed them that these top percentages represented the percentage of residents that would be Medicaid payers. And then the bottom numbers kind of along, along the middle of this table represent the number of residents that would either be a Medicaid, a private payer, or a Medicare resident that would reside in, in these, um, these five different green homes that they were planning to build. And, and then we played with the different interest rates that they had. And, and at the time we were, Rates were much lower. They were actually closer for them. Uh, they probably could have gotten a rate at about 375, but we were keeping them conservative and running all the analysis for them at about a four and a half percent interest rate. And so the baseline that they looked at is if they still had 45% Medicaid population, their debt coverage ratio would be only a 0.88 coverage. And what we looked at is that if you're able to maintain and be disciplined and reduce your payer mix from 45 to 35, which essentially takes your Medicaid population down to about 25 residents, you'd be very close to achieving that 1.2 coverage. And those six green homes would be able to operate on their own. 
And so the conversation with them started to be around what is the right payer mix that they ultimately wanted to provide to the community? And did they feel this was a nonprofit? Did they feel it, it, it contradicted their mission at all if they were to be so diligent and drive their Medicaid population down? And so sometimes that's, that's the conversation that providers are grappling with is, what do we feel like we're, we're almost mission driven if they're, if they're nonprofit? If, what do they feel like they should be offering or allowing from a Medicaid population? They had no problem attracting and getting residents to move in and pay a private pay rate. In this, in this scenario, the highest number we were assuming is that they would have 36 private payers and 11 Medicare, which is essentially already what they were achieving previously in an environment that was drastically, drastically worse than what they were proposing to, to provide to the residents. And so this exercise was something that was eye-opening enough for them to realize that the way they decided to operate their campus and function really was a major driver. And this is something that our organization needs to address and tackle very early on, because essentially saying that I'm going to go out, I'm going to provide a, a greenhouse on our campus, but then thinking you're going to operate it from a payer mix standpoint, identically to how you're operating your existing and skilled environment you need to realize that the outcome will be the same. You're, you, just because you offer financially, just because you offer a different housing environment, doesn't mean that your financials are all magically gonna improve if you have the same payer mix. And so those are, those are things that, that are drastically important to understand as you go into this. The other piece that we had a long conversation about goes back to a little bit of the marketability. Personally, I thought we were a little conservative in this analysis because they were they were able to achieve, as I mentioned, 33 private pay residents in this existing environment that they had that, again, was, was really not a great, great setting. And the competition they had in the market was also extremely old and dated. And so we started to ask them, don't you feel that you'll be able to start to capture additional market share in the market? And you start to look at the marketability of one, will people be more attracted to live in these new environments? And two, if they are more attracted, are you able to charge slightly more from a private pay standpoint? In a lot of cases, the hands down question would, you know, would all, almost all the time be yes. And the reason being is if you look at what your traditional skilled nursing environment is, I mean, think about this client example that we're giving where you have hundreds of residents that would have to come down an elevator and eat in one single dining room. You had 150 residents essentially doing that uh, uh, in their campus versus a greenhouse where each house has their own dining and kitchen and, the, and their care uh, staff and their Shabazz's that, that, that Susan just walked us through are cooking the meals in front of the residents, sitting with them, eating with them and providing those meals with them. They all have private rooms. They have, they have, they have the quality that they have that they're able to offer a resident. And the, the, you know, Irving used an example of would you live in a, a Hilton that's been has been renovated or 40, 50 years old? Our argument always is, is if you have a two different hotels that you're trying to choose between, and someone were to say you can choose between a Red Roof Inn or a Ritz Carlton, and the Ritz Carlton is priced at the exact same price as a Red Roof Inn, where do you think most of your consumers are going to choose? Without a doubt, everyone's going to choose a Ritz Carlton. And so then the argument could be. What's the appropriate premium that you're going to charge on a greenhouse private pay room? Because it is one of the best products that's being offered in that market. And then 
seeing how those also impact your financials. And so those are conversations that just because you're offering a skilled environment, you're offering a far superior environment in a lot of cases to what your existing competition is. And so knowing your market and pricing that appropriately is also a very critical um, component when you're working with, with um, repositioning a campus this way. So Irving, I don't know if there's any final closing questions you had or if we wanted to open it up for Q&A directly. There we go. So I think you've both, both you and Susan, did exactly what we'd hoped. You framed the issues extremely well. And I know that there are lots of questions. I've got at least eight of them scribbled down here. But I, we, we obviously have some in the Q&A box. So I think we ought to uh, go to what our audience uh, has asked. So what do you see in the uh, in the magic Q&A box there, Romilly? Hi, thank you so much for our informative webinar, <coughs> Jamie and Susan. So let's open up the Q&A session. So the first question is, the slide on staffing and cost shifting used 60 elders. How is that physical environment designed? So the physical environment, would it could be uh, five homes of 12 elders in each home or six homes of 10 elders in each home. But these are our separate greenhouse homes, autonomously functioning homes. And it was looking solely at the FTEs that would be essential to staffing 60 elders and in greenhouse homes. Thank you, Susan. And um, <clears throat> we have another question for you, Susan, here, which is um, how many greenhouse project um, homes are there at the moment? We have 362 greenhouse homes in 32 states. And I think we went into the pandemic with 298 homes. So that tells you kind of even through the pandemic that there were greenhouse homes that were able to open and you know went through the construction phase and the whole nine yards and, and got their homes open and elders moved in. It's pretty exciting to see that happen. And any plans for international green homes, greenhouses? You know, it's really interesting with the onslaught of COVID. Um, COVID was not confined to the U.S., as we all know. It's a global um, enemy, if you will. And so we have been approached by several different countries, um, a lot in Canada. We've certainly been having conversations uh, with some in the U.K., um, Ireland being the most recent. Uh, we've had some in Africa, Australia. Um, that we've been talking to pretty seriously. Oh, Israel as well. It's a model that just makes so much sense. And as we said at the top of the discussion, uh, Jamie framed the issue, I think, very well. The question is how to make the numbers work. There are lots of infrastructure and regulatory and administrative assumptions that those who are familiar with the business make. It's just part of you know, how we think about things. And the assumptions about the universal worker, the next, the biggest topic has to do with manpower, labor, workforce issues in long 
long-term care. So the question I have for Susan and possibly for Jamie, based on your experience, what's the profile of the typical universal worker? I can't get used to saying that other word, so forgive me. But that <laughs> typical universal worker who needs to be a jack of all trades, what's the typical profile? How difficult or easy is it to recruit them, retain them, and what do you have to pay them? Yeah, that's a, it's a great uh, question. And, you know, I, I've heard people say you don't want experienced people. Well, hire for attitude and we'll train them and give them the skills that they need. And others that say, oh, no, if you're doing a universal worker, you want them to have a core skill set that is about how to provide care. What I have heard, and I thought one of the wisest statements from um, a leader of Greenhouse Homes, she said it's really about finding people who have a heart, number one, but have experienced working as a team. And she talks through the interview process, tell me about the teams you've been a part of, because it's so important to really know how to work together. And the dynamics around teamwork is are so important. So that's one of the things that she uh, suggested is pretty critical. I think um, to your point about what do you have to pay them, we recommend in our performa that you do a 10% bump to what you're paying a traditional CNA. Um, we did a wage survey in 2017, I believe it was, and we found some that uh, in a unionized um, facility, they were only able to do a 3% increase. They said we were at the top of our market and it was the rate we negotiated with the union. Um, and the highest was about a 35% increase. And in that case, they said we were at the bottom and when we did a competitive um, wage analysis of who's paying what in our neck of the woods, we said, we've got to increase and we believe because of the additional education and training that it's worth it. We're asking them to be more, do more and give them the education to do it. So I think that's a, it, that's a good principled response. I know there's a lot of granularities an awful lot of detail, awful lot of devils in those, in those details. Oh yes. <laughs> uh, for, for Jamie, one of the things that struck me about Jamie's presentation was the assumption, the requirement that operators, owners, investors, that we look at our assets differently, that we consider not only the current built environment, but what's possible. And the question for you, I think, Jamie, that haunts my reveries is how do we get access? How do we get an operation that's running at 0.8% margin? How do we get an operation who can't necessarily assume more debt? How do we get access to capital to make these investments in the physical property in the campus? So I, I you know, I'll, I guess I would address that from a very global perspective across the industry, because I, I do think that the organizations who have not invested and in are single site and are functioning at a 0% margin, essentially, might not have the ability to get access to that capital, to be totally transparent. If they don't have cash reserves or investments and they're a single site, 
and they likely probably don't have, I mean, hopefully don't have a lot of debt already on their on their books, the ability for them to totally reposition without almost essentially saying, we're going to go entirely private pay or Medicare payer sources. Unless they make that decision, the ability for them to fund those those debt, debt amounts that they're going to have to take on could be very difficult. So a single site provider might struggle. The organizations that are ability that that have some capacity to either liquidate portions of assets that they have and use those funds to help fund some of the cash requirement for a project and then go out and either achieve uh, you could access the fixed rate bond market you could you know do traditional bank loans we have a project right now that is going through a skilled nursing repositioning where they're not necessarily doing the greenhouse, but they're introducing the household neighborhood model to four different neighborhoods that they're able to kind of chop up their existing environment to, and they're converting them all to private wings. They're accessing capital through the United States Department of Agriculture, USDA, and their their capital access that they got was a 2.25 loan for 35 years. So it's one of the best terms out there. Um, it's a bit of a process to go through to work with USDA to get those funds, but there's there's avenues out there. I think you need to really kind of be creative and work with either a consultant or a banker to say there's not one size fits all. You might have a project that could be dead with one option, but totally viable with another. And exploring what's out there is is something that we would always encourage um, because it's kind of two big pieces you got to juggle. You got to juggle the cost of doing the project and what that brings from a debt perspective, and then truly how you're going to operate that campus. And then the ability for those two to kind of marry each other and pay for pay for one another is is that kind of dance and puzzle that you really end up going through. That's a that's a very good answer. And and I do know that USDA has some very significant advantages and uh, so I'm sure that other people will be interested in that as well. Are there other questions? I don't want to hog the stage here. Are there other questions, Romilly? Not on my side, Abby. So well, we've got other, time for a couple more. Well, the one question I'd, I'd like to put for both Susan and uh, Jamie has to do with the acceptance of um, the limitations associated with greenhouse. So the consumers that you showed and the residents that typically occupy greenhouse um, are not the advanced neurologically disabled uh, individual who very often are the individual with severe or second stage Alzheimer's related disorder. Um, what are the limitations associated with who can benefit, who's able to live in one of these small houses, a greenhouse project, Susan? You know, I, I have research. The research that I use for the um, the total uh, time hours per resident day, in that same study, they found that there was no difference in acuity level, none whatsoever. Uh, between greenhouse and their traditional counterparts that they compared them with. These are licensed as skilled nursing, and so this is home for life. It's one of the trademark requirements that it's home for life. 
And so we've got, uh, in fact, in your neck of the woods, not where you currently are, but uh, in Boston, they care for people that are actually on um, ventilators. And we did research where it showed 85% of those living in greenhouse homes were living with mild to severe cognitive impairment. So truly, truly. And, you know, I think they don't look to be having some of the limitations you described, but there's something about normalizing our programs and our environments and the impact that it has on the person. When you put someone, if you don't put them in their street clothes, if you're not getting them outside, if you're keeping them in their room, and I can tell you they weren't measuring antipsychotics during the pandemic, but I guarantee you, if you put somebody living with cognitive impairment in the room that they share with somebody else and said, you can't go anywhere. I'm pretty sure that there is the antipsychotic usage that went up. But in a greenhouse home, honoring the natural rhythm, you're able to really meet those unmet needs or what we might call the, be the behavioral expressions that uh, result as because those needs weren't met. It's uh, it's continues to be a fascinating model and a challenge for uh, those of us who have been in the business for a long time to wrap our heads around in the particulars. In general, of course, it's a very appealing, very attractive model. And I want to thank you, Susan, for your pioneering work in this regard. I want to thank you, Jamie, for uh, making us look at these numbers and at these fiscal issues in a different light. I want to thank the folks who showed up and uh, took the time to participate. And I think with that, we say uh, good afternoon or good morning or good evening, wherever you are. Thank you, Irving, for the opportunity. And thank you, Romilly, for your support. Bye-bye, yeah, everyone. And thank you all for attending today's webinar. We found, hope you found it informative. And you will be asked to fill in a very brief survey at the end of the webinar. Thank you again, and we look forward to seeing you again in a future program. Have a good evening or day or afternoon, everyone. Bye-bye.